0: hello and welcome to another episode of history hack alex and i are bouncing off the walls but i'm gonna leave her to bounce some more and tell you exactly who we've got on
1: all my dreams have come true today you know i've wanted formula one um for ages we have formula one we have motor racing we have a public speaker and author but mark gallagher is mr formula one he's previously been with jordan red bull cosworth he runs a podcast for himself um at the controls about Formula One, which if you haven't tuned in and listened to that, do, because it's brilliant. Uh, But he's here today to talk motor racing and history with us. He and I have already had like a massive behind the scenes, like loving over Mika Hakkinen, who was my obsession (laughs) when I was a teenager. Uh, Uh, Mark, welcome.
2: It's so great to be joining you today. Really, thanks so much for having me.
1: Let's just deal with this. Why are you booing Hakkinen?
0: Because I'm not a Hakkinen fan. I'm really sorry.
1: Boo. Get off. He's awesome.
0: I, I, <clears throat> I'm a Kimi Raikkonen fan.
1: Ugh. Well, it's just as well,
2: you don't invite him on the podcast because he is a man of very few words.
0: Yeah, it would be That's just so- definitely <laughs> silent. <laughs> That's, that is fine for me. I, as long as he's on the camera, I'm good with that. Ah, okay, okay, okay. He's
2: getting quite old now, Kimmy.
0: Oh, I don't mind. You don't
1: mind? Okay, okay, fine. I just loved Hakenham because he was so zen for the whole of his career. Um, Apart from possibly, I remember the German Grand Prix where he got rammed off the grid at the beginning when they went round the first bend and it was Coulthard's fault. And I hated Coulthard forevermore after that. really? Yeah, um, that was it.
2: DC's a very nice guy, you know.
1: I know, but it was just, that was, I I have to admit, at that point I was a very young teenager and you know, like, you're once the acts of... Judgment has fallen. That's it. That was like Mm. he went in a pile with e seventeen, not being (laughs) as good as take that. It was like you, you are my enemy. Uh, No, I love that Hackenham was was just so zen and just that you could be in such a hyper masculine sport without being just really misogynistic and stuff. He just seemed like a permanently nice guy. He's an incredible,
2: incredible guy. Actually, he's 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 still a very impressive guy. To work with, and we, we do a podcast each month, I make a and podcast, and the stories that he comes out with, I mean, he thinks they're quite boring, and then he just lands us with some jewel of a story that no one has ever heard before, and he's just, he's hes such a, a fun guy to work with still.
1: Oh, you, you should you bring, bring him on here. Then.
2: Yeah, I should try and do that, shouldn't I? I need to get him to... Tell us something from history that he's interested. I've never asked him about that. Maybe it's time that I asked him about some Finnish history.
0: If you could get me Robert Kubica on here, I would be eternally grateful.
2: Robert Kubica? What's the Robert Kubica fandom about?
0: Uh, Because he is my fellow brother. Not literally brother, but my Polish brother. Oh,
2: I see. Oh, I see. Right. Oh, now I'm with you. So I went to uh, went to Warsaw with Mika Hacken, and I'm going to mention Mika a couple of times. I went to Warsaw with Mika uh, two years ago, and we did a press conference. And the only questions we got were about Robert Kibitza. No one was interested in Mika. <laughs> they were so like, sorry. they were basically, you know, what do you think of Robert Kibitza? Is Robert Kibitza faster than you, Mika? I mean, it was. Just, <sighs> we came out of the press conference, and Mika was like. Why didn't they just bring Robert Kubica here? To <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, to Poland, you failed. You had Mika yeah. Hakkinen and you yeah. asked him nothing of interest. You failed Poland.
0: Now, do you want to know why? It's because he's the first Polish race car driver, Formula One, and it was so amazing for Poland to go, wow, look, we are in Formula One for the first time ever. It was, a, it was incredible.
2: Yes, and actually it led to something that historians have not actually picked up upon, which is that hum- Poland actually invaded Hungary uh just a few years ago uh and this was because Robert Kubica was racing at the Hungarian Grand Prix and when we turned up the entire city had been taken over by Polish fans and (laughs) the racetrack was just one massive Polish flag from the start finish line all the way around the track it was just amazing all I can say is that Polish fans when they get behind a national hero watch out the rest of the world it is amazing they were fabulous
0: Let's that. do
1: the history because otherwise, we're just going to sit here and yap about our favorite drivers. But yeah, get Micker on and we'll talk about like Formula One in the 90s because okay, that cool. was like, oh, I loved it. I knew the spec of every engine. Oh, it would be brilliant. <laughs> uh, right. Okay. Anyway, <clears throat> we're here today because we're going to talk about the Nazis and motor racing and Mercedes Benz and how, because we all know the Nazis got their grubby little mitt into everything and f- motor racing. Was no different. But let's go back a bit further than that. Tell us a bit about motor racing during the interwar years. It's not just about racing cars, is it? It's already a massive enterprise.
2: Yeah, no question about it. But clearly, what happened was the First World War had the impact of really developing technology and particularly motorised technology. So all of a sudden, the car, which was already massively interesting to people in the you know prior to the First World War, it took went on to a whole new level uh, after the the First World War ended, and so you had. Major French manufacturers, British manufacturers, Italian manufacturers, all vying to create the best technology. And, of course, the best way to prove that was through motor racing. So you had people like Enzo Ferrari who would go on to establish the very famous Ferrari brand after the Second World War. He was actually racing. He was a driver himself, and he was racing, and then he was entering Alfa Romeo sports cars. So in Italy, Enzo Ferrari was building his career in those kind of formative years between the First and Second World War. And then as you move towards the late 20s and into the 1930s, you have not just the giants of of Europe in terms of car manufacturers, but also you have the Americans having come in, of course, Henry Ford famously, uh, you know, developing production techniques that enabled mass production, much faster, much more efficient mass production of cars. So all of a sudden the car industry just accelerated in an an extraordinary way. And there was a trajectory of sort of industrial growth there, which, I mean, every government in every country was really keen to get behind because clearly it meant jobs, it meant growth, it meant wealth for the economy. And Germany was no different. And so when the Nazis came to power, there's no question that it was already established that the car industry was going to be an area of huge interest for them. And also that motor racing as a way of promoting your industrial strength in terms of car manufacturing was going to take kind of center stage in terms of the marketing, if you want to call that, of what they were going to be doing.
1: I think Johnny Dyer will not forgive me if I do not interject with the anecdote about how the prancing horse for Ferrari is based on a world war one flying ace. There you go, Johnny done. We can move on now. You you
2: can tick that box.
1: Yep. (laughs)
0: Okay. Good. So racing success reflects commercial success
2: during the period, doesn't it? It it, it does. I mean, we still have the saying in, in racing circles that if you, you know, if you win on Sunday, you sell on Monday. Um, I'm not sure. that's the case really anymore there's still often a debate about that but i think if you go back to those interwar years there's no question that there was so much prestige attached to being able to go out and win motor races be it the major grand prix the grand approves as they were called the major grand prix events or even sort of local events so the reality was that the car manufacturers knew that this was an extremely good way to promote your brand and give your salesman something to talk about and also to prove your technology. And I think actually that technological proving, uh, which is still very much relevant today, is something that the car manufacturers locked on to at an early stage. Because if you can build a car that lasts for a long time under the most arduous of circumstances, that can can be driven at vast speeds, basically what you're saying to the public is, if it can survive this, it can certainly survive you driving it to work or doing the school run or whatever you want to do with it. So there was a lot of technological innovation as a result of of motor racing, and this is why companies like Mercedes-Benz and Auto Union uh, then decided to embrace the sport and, in the case of the Nazi era, secure some uh, backing from uh, the German government.
1: Speaking of... Hitler is a petrol head, isn't he? We know where this is going to lead in that case because of the Nazis' love of propaganda.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You know, those I've read a couple of books where they describe Adolf as being a, you know, a petrol head. I mean, I think what's clear is that he recognised that there was a lot of prestige to be had from arriving at events in the right kind of car, and he had a, he had a good friend who owned a Mercedes dealership in um, Munich and he had already purchased a couple of cars from him. And actually, while he was in... In prison, uh, following his failed putsch, um, he actually ordered a brand new Mercedes-Benz. So that when he came out, he had a very grand car to, you know, attend future meetings, etc. So there's no doubt that right back into the 1920s, Adolf Hitler was aware of the fact that it was good to turn up in the right machinery, and he seemed to have a preference for Mercedes-Benz cars, and uh, and of course that then translated into what they subsequently signed off in terms of financial aid to both Mercedes-Benz and Auto Union. Uh, in the 1930s for grand prix racing.
0: So what is the difference between let's say the Berlin Olympics and what they can draw or gain from hosting that and motor racing?
2: Well I think when people talk about sport in Nazi Germany very often the Berlin Olympics gets mentioned because it was such a, a you know massive global event and of course the Olympic games attracts you know competitors from all over the world and there were a number of very sort of kind of epic moments during those Olympic games famously the, the black American runner Jesse Owens uh, winning gold in the 100 200 meters uh, races, also the four by 100 meter relay and the long jump. And of course, this completely went against the Nazis' idea of kind of Aryan supremacy. They had this black American athlete turned up and beat everyone and uh, Adolf Hitler himself was there to, to witness that. So from a propaganda point of view, actually the Berlin Games, which was supposed to be a huge coup for, Nazi, for the Nazi party, in some ways backfired uh, on them. And there were other examples of, of kind of sporting uh, controversy during that time. England playing Germany, for example, and the England team being being required to give the Nazi uh, salute, that was uh, and that was in, at the Olympic Stadium in 1938. But what made motor racing, I think, much more uh, important in terms of a, a kind of a sporting insight to Nazi thinking was the fact that there's technology involved. And the one thing that we know from the 1930s is that there was a rearmament program going on in Germany. And the fact that companies like Mercedes-Benz and Auto Union and other manufacturers were able to use their research and development budgets to create great engines and great transmissions and great suspension systems and train their engineers in these high-end technologies became an extremely important weapon in, in many respects. And so you had people who are involved in the design and manufacturing of the racing cars actually also involved in other projects to do with the rearmament program, making sure that the German military would have the best trucks and cars and tracked vehicles and essentially have the hardware necessary to launch the, the military campaigns when they began in 1939.
1: I mean, you're talking about the, most, the more sinister side of um, the incorporation. Tell us about Ferdinand Porsche.
2: Yes, yeah, so Ferdinand Porsche. You know, here's a here's a brand name today that you know people all over the world uh, aspire to to own Porsches, or maybe I don't know if it, all everyone aspires to own one. But it was anyway, certainly a very famous name. But Ferdinand Porsche um, actually started as a designer involved in the First World War, uh, designing giant artillery uh, transport uh, equipment, and he subsequently would work on the rearmament program himself in terms of design uh, engineering. Now he worked for uh, Mercedes Benz um, in the 1920s. He actually fell out. Uh, with Mercedes-Benz, bit of a power struggle there in 1928. Uh, and he then created his own, essentially his own design consultancy. And his design consultancy was contracted by Auto Union to develop the Auto Union Grand Prix cars, which became extremely successful. Not quite as successful as Mercedes-Benz, but certainly very successful, all the same during the 1930s. And at the same time as Ferdinand as Porsche was working on these racing programs, his company was also providing design consultancy into the German military in terms of, again, the tracked vehicles and all the transport uh, equipment that would be necessary to move uh, the military uh, around during subsequent campaigns. So you know, Ferdinand Porsche in the 1930s was doing what so many business people were doing, which was simply trying to find great contracts to work to. And some of the greatest contracts that were out there were to do with the creation of the military apparatus that the Nazi party were, were aiming to bring to bear in their subsequent campaigns that they were going to launch.
0: So how were Grand Prix drivers regarded in Nazi Germany?
2: I think it's not uh, too small a point to say they were regarded as kind of real superheroes because these cars were not, I mean, we're not talking about slow cars. We're talking about cars that were capable of doing speeds of up to 200 miles per hour, which in the 1930s on very, very skinny tires and brakes, which were, you know, state-of-the-art at the time, but nothing like what we have today, of course. I mean, you're talking about machinery with a huge amount of, of power, drivers who were completely fearless, and fearless in the sense that, quite frankly, here was a sport where if you had a decent accident, you weren't going to walk away from it. You were going to lose your life. And there were a lot of fatalities. I mean, fatalities, in some cases, in multiple races over a weekend. So you'd have the main race, you might have a support race. There'd be fatalities... And people would just continue with the racing. So, the, the, the reality was it was kind of almost an accepted part of the sporting environment. So, when you had a driver who would go out there and win multiple Grand Prix and then win the, world, win the European Championships, uh, which they had during the 1930s, these guys took on real positions of superstardom. And of course, they then had the support of. The car manufacturer behind them, in the case of Mercedes-Benz or Auto Union, promoting them. So they were being used for all the PR and the appearances. And then on top of that, you had the Nazi party also using the propaganda benefits of having particularly German drivers uh, racing and winning in their machinery
1: feel as well it's like a progression on from the worship that was leveled on german pilots in world war one isn't it there's a lot of parallels obviously with developing types of media but it's the same kind of adulation transferred onto motor racing drivers
2: yeah it very much so and actually it's interesting you say that because actually if you look at Formula One when it began. So the Formula Formula One as a, as a category of racing began in the 1940s but the Formula One World Championship as we know it, for the World Championship for Drivers was established in 1950 and very often when you look at the, the drivers and the people who are around in racing in the 1950s, this was the post Second World War generation and there are a lot of parallels drawn b- between the kind of fighter pilots of the Second World War and the racing drivers in Formula One of the 1950s and you only had to look at someone like Damon Hill's father, Graham Hill. I mean, Graham Hill looked like he could have been a Spitfire pilot in the Second World War, and he wasn't. But, you know, but the point is that there was a kind of uh, the same ethos, that kind of you know, huge bravery, huge courage, the fact that you mightn't come back. You know, you leave the pit mm-hmm. lane, you mightn't return to the pit lane at the end of the race, you might lose your life. So there was that, that became part of the, the mystique and I think the romanticism uh, of Grand Prix motor racing, both in the 1930s and and subsequently after the war. Tell us who was Bernd Rosemeyer. So Bernd Rosemeyer was one of the leading drivers of that of that era. Um, he was German. He won the European Championship, so this is like the equivalent of Formula One today. But he won the European Championship, um, driving championship in 1936. In 1937, of the 12 Grand Prix that Mercedes-Benz and Auto Union competed in, Rosemeyer won four of auto unions five victories against mercedes-benz and this is a really important point is that you had these two german teams you had auto union
0: mm-hmm. you had
2: mercedes-benz and so whilst they were both kind of promoting their own products they were actually there was a huge rivalry between them so bert rosemeyer was um kind of the superstar for uh, auto union he then went on to kind of elevate himself into a kind of I'm trying to think of the equivalent, it'd be like the Beckhams, I suppose. I mean, he went and married someone who was equally famous. He married a lady called Ellie Beinhorn. Mm -hmm. Now she was a very famous German aviator and she was doing extraordinary things with planes. He was doing extraordinary things with cars. They met at the, at a Grand Prix in Czechoslovakia in 1935. He was actually on the podium. She met him on the podium. So very romantic meeting. They went off and they got married and, Wow! This they just got adopted by the Nazi Party as kind of um, a great exemplars of men and women in Germany doing great things. Now this was all quite controversial because you know Bert Rosemeyer was subsequently, and if you, if you read the, the, the detail, it looks like he was kind of forced into joining the SS. Um, and this was, you know, Heinrich Himmler personally ordered that he should have SS membership and it, it's kind of unclear as to the extent to which burnt Rosemeyer wanted to do that because the reality was he kind of had to do what he was being told because of the amount of funding that was being provided to auto union by the Nazi party and of course this was all wrapped up together so it was all to do with power and finance and influence and all that kind of thing so Bernd Rosemeyer really was with Ellie uh they were the superstar couple and then to really kind of seal what became the the myth of Bernd Rosemeyer he was then subsequently killed in January uh, 1938 and he was killed in a pretty extraordinary event where both Mercedes and Auto Union were setting up to prove their cars to be the fastest possible cars that the world had ever seen. So they were doing these high-speed record runs using the brand-new German Autobahn. So can you believe it? Berndt Rosemeyer had gone out and driven his auto union that morning down the road at almost 270 miles per hour. Now, when when you think about that number, 270 miles per hour almost in a 1930s, uh, race car it was extraordinary and then unfortunately on the second run his car suffered a failure he was killed and you can imagine it led to i mean it led to an extraordinary uh, outpouring of grief in uh, in nazi germany his wife ellie wanted to have a private funeral because she felt sure that the nazis were going to turn it into a big propaganda thing and she didn't want that to happen and oh, then they,
1: naturally uh, they did right
2: and naturally they did. Naturally they did. And she, you know, extraordinarily, she she lived to be 100. And she gave some interviews not long before she passed away, in which she talked about what happened back then. And it was very clear that the annoyance that she felt mm. at the way in which her husband's funeral was hijacked by the Nazis ne- never left her. And uh, so that, that kind of brought the curtain down on on them as the as the kind of jewels in the Nazi crown in terms of, um, you know, celebrity, uh, a celebrity married couple.
1: I just, that I am going to move on in a minute to non-Germans quite often, but you have just mentioned, we haven't really covered it. Tell us about the two teams then you've got Mercedes Benz who obviously we all know the name and then auto union as well.
2: Okay. So auto union is effectively Audi. So if you're familiar with the Audi brand, there are four, the logo for that is is four interlocking, Circles, and those four interlocking circles uh, represent four German automotive brands: uh, Audi, Horch, DKW, and Wanderer. And what happened was those four brands came together as Auto Union. So Auto Union, uh, based in in Saxony, became the kind of arch rival of Mercedes Benz. And essentially, what happened was when Uh, Adolf Hitler came to power. You had the chief executive of Mercedes-Benz, a guy by the name of uh, Wilhelm Kissel, and the chairman of Auto Union, who was Baron uh, Klaus von Ortsen. And basically, both these gentlemen were beating a path to uh, the Nazis' door saying, we want your funding. Uh, we want your funding for our car companies. We want your funding for our racing programs because we're going to promote uh, Germany, you know, through through motor racing. And both of them were given support. Now, Mercedes Benz ultimately got a little bit more su- uh, financial support from the government than Auto Union did, but Auto Union were every bit as much uh, in the frame. And that battle between those two. Uh, famous brands became kind of the stuff of legends in motor racing uh, history. So setting aside the kind of political connotations, the reality was that from an engineering and a technical point of view, what Mercedes-Benz were doing and what Auto Union were doing at the time was all groundbreaking stuff. And essentially, it led to complete German domination of Grand Prix motor racing from for really a six-year period leading up to the start of the Second World War. So they just absolutely washed away all the competition that had previously uh, been there from companies like uh, Alfa Romeo and Bugatti and Maserati and so on. Frankly, they just dominated the stage between them.
1: That's mad. Um, But... We've talked about burned Rosemeyer, but it is, I mean, there's a Brit caught up in all of this nonsense. So it's one thing to be a German and be sucked into the Nazi propaganda machine, but tell us about Richard. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you
0: didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare insurance plans.
2: was kind of, I'm trying to think what the equivalent would be today, the kind of Jensen Button of his time, really. Very good-looking young guy, uh, English. He was born in uh, Chichester. Um, He was the son of a very wealthy uh, Scotch whiskey uh, businessman, a guy called William uh, Seaman. And he lived a very, you know, a very blessed life, I have to say. I mean, when you read, there's an excellent book that's been published uh, this year by, it's been written by Richard Williams. It's called A Race With Love, and death, and it tells the story of Richard Seaman's uh, uh, short life. Uh, but in his twenty-six years uh, on the planet, I mean, he he had an extraordinary time. He uh, say so had a very blessed childhood and upbringing. Uh, his family were extremely wealthy. They lived in very large country mansions. They had properties in London. Uh, they travelled extensively, and his passion. Uh, unfortunately for his father, who wanted him to become a businessman, his passion was motor racing. And so basically his mum and dad were asked to write out checks so that he could buy racing cars. And using those racing cars, he soon came to the attention of Mercedes-Benz, particularly after a uh, particularly successful season driving his own car in 1936. So essentially he became to the attention of Mercedes. The Mercedes team boss, Alfred Neubauer, Uh, invited him to test the Mercedes-Benz car at the Nürburgring in Germany. Richard Seaman did such a good job. He was signed up to the team. And in 1937, uh, against the wishes of his mother and father, uh, he joined uh, Mercedes-Benz and began racing for them and excelled in 1938. He actually won the 1938 German Grand Prix. This young English racing driver, you can imagine, standing on the top step of the podium, the 1938 German Grand Prix, and controversially being required to give the Nazi salute. And there's a very famous photograph of him giving that salute. And basically, if you could give a salute that was half-hearted, if you could possibly imagine a half-hearted salute, that was the one he gave. I mean, he basically it was all he did to raise his his arm kind of limp is his arm looks incredibly limp i mean it's like oh my goodness i have to do this and it's one of the things that richard williams talks about in his excellent book is is really the uncertainty that still exists over the degree to which richard seaman in any way supported the nazis and There's nothing that you read or come across that suggests that he was doing anything other than simply pursuing his career in Mm. the best, in the best machinery that he could get his hands on. So he became an absolute uh, superstar uh, in terms of, you know, British sportsman uh, at the time. And then tragically, he was killed, and this was in 1939, a uh, couple of months before the uh, outbreak of the Second World War. He was leading the Belgian Grand Prix. It was pouring with rain. Uh, his car crashed into a tree, and unfortunately, burst into flames. A big problem in those days with uh, cars exploding in in a in an accident, and he died that later that night as a result of his burns at 26 years of age but the kind of footnote to that story is that of course he was his body was returned to to london um he was buried at putney vale uh, cemetery in london and very controversially got a lot of media coverage at the time the biggest wreath at his funeral apparently it was like 10 feet across came from adolf hitler um uh with a big swastika in the middle of it and Ew. so that you can imagine in 1939 just you know 10, 10 weeks before the outbreak of war uh, that got a lot of coverage that wreath by the way his mother did not allow it to go to the cemetery
1: good uh, that cemetery i'm sure that is a cemetery where kerensky and his wife are and i think bruce ismay who owned the titanic but that's just me being an absolute nerd
0: I'm actually really, really horrified that he told me that he died. I'm sitting there thinking, right, you're going to tell this epic story. He is going to survive. He's going to hit Second World War. And then you come out with this.
1: Yeah, that's that's motor racing in the 30s. It was that's, that was shit motor- crazy.
2: I mean, this one of the reasons why... You know, and I think we're, we'll probably move on to talk about some of the legacy of of that era and how it's relevant today. But one of the things about, for example, Formula One today, is that drivers in Formula One today can, you know, if you're good enough, you can have a career that lasts well over a decade. You can race at the pinnacle of Formula One for fifteen years, twenty years, um, and and never suffer an injury. Uh, careers back then lasted a very short time because you either gave up before you suffered an injury or worse, or you were killed at the wheel. And, and so careers were very, very short. And the, the Richard Seaman story is an extraordinary story. And he is well remembered. You know, there are still a number of uh, Richard Seaman awards uh, for British Racing Drivers, uh, British Racing Drivers Club, which owns Silverstone, uh, has an award uh, named after him, which is still awarded the, to this day. So the reality is that, you know, his legacy continues. But my word, he had a short but very brilliant
0: career. I don't want to ask this question, to be fair, but I am going to. Um, How much money did the Nazis spend on motor racing?
2: Well, so so there's two two parts to the uh, really to to answer answer that. Really, I think the first thing to say is that Mercedes-Benz spent about 105, 106 million pounds over the course of a six-year period on Grand Prix motor racing and auto union a bit less, about £80 million. These are obviously at today's today's figures. Um, But it's important to say that the Nazi party did not provide all of that funding. And I think it's one of the myths that has grown is that these teams were entirely funded uh, by the Nazis. They were not. Simply what happened was the Nazis contributed uh, funding. Auto Union and Mercedes-Benz were spending about 1% of their annual turnover on motor racing. So both those companies were already spending their own Reichsmarks on Grand Prix motor racing, and the Nazis were simply asked to make a a contribution. And it looks like, you know, they made – a contribution of about somewhere about a sixth of the budget. I mean, in sort of round terms, something about a sixth to a fifth of the budget of those teams was being provided by uh, the Nazi party. But there's another kind of grey area, and that grey area comes where due to the success that those companies were having in motor racing and as car businesses, they were winning contracts from the government for the rearmament program and to build lots and lots of equipment so there was actually an indirect financial benefit from the contracts and the orders that they were receiving uh from the government at the time so it's all you know added all together there's still no question There was a great deal of money being spent on motor racing in the 1930s in germany
1: That's insane uh, you've touched on it already um let's start by tell us about lewis hamilton and how the impacts of the nazi period on formula one was visible even last year
2: yeah, so this is a really int- very topical because uh, this year, the Mercedes-Benz Formula One team, which until now has been continued to be referred to as the Silver Arrows. So the, the Mercedes-Benz cars, Grand Prix cars of the 1930s were known as Silver Arrows, as were the Auto Union. So these German cars always ran in kind of their bare uh, aluminium bodywork. Um so the silver arrows has continued up until very much the present day. So all of Lewis Hamilton's world championship titles for Mercedes Benz have been won under that kind of silver arrows uh, t- uh, name. This year, the the Mercedes Benz team has changed their entire livery to black, and mm-hmm. that's to that's to reflect Lewis Hamilton's uh, campaign in in relation to Black Lives Matter. And it's become a. I mean, as we're literally recording this podcast, it's kind of a quite big controversy in Formula One. Uh, I've been very fortunate to work with Lewis at an event earlier this year. And when you talk to Lewis Hamilton for a very short period of time, you realize the extent to which racism and bullying has had a a big effect on his life, particularly in his formative years. So the Mercedes-Benz team have taken this on board and they have rebranded themselves into the black colour scheme this year. And again, motor racing historians pointing out this is the first time that that livery has changed since 1934.
1: To be honest as well, though, not only is it that connotation, but God love him, doesn't he? He's got a boss deal as well. And Hugo Boss, that's again got nasty connotations historically so i i don't think it's that much of a leap for such a statement to be made and i don't think that it should be regarded negatively
2: now but it's interesting the i think you would both know only too well on social media you have this percentage of people who are just nasty and (laughs) and and lewis gets it in the neck all the time about the fact that um, he drives for Mercedes Benz, and look at Mercedes Benz did in the 1930s, and during the Second World War, and the Hugo Boss thing, and people just come out with these just ignorant, um, you know, unhelpful, irrelevant statements about the past. The reality is that the Mercedes Benz organisation today, the Formula One team that Lewis drives for, has absolutely nothing to do with what happened in the 1930s, and and actually, when you when you read the memoirs of people who are involved. In Grand Prix racing in the 1930s, people who were fortunate enough to survive the Second World War and then reflect on it, of course, many of them never realized what was coming. I mean, they did, that, I mean, they certainly were aware of what was going on in Nazi Germany, but a lot of the people involved in these programs they had no idea that they were about to live through the greatest, you know, conflagration the world has ever seen but Mm. it is interesting that today you know in the middle of 2020 in the middle of the global pandemic that you know has had a big effect on our sport as well that actually there's a big discussion going on about the history of mercedes the history of our sport and some of that is being used to attack lewis hamilton who is arguably the greatest driver that britain has ever produced and certainly uh, at the moment the dominant figure in formula one
1: you know what, the amount of crap I have taken in the last, since we started this podcast and since I founded a charity, which I don't know how anyone could be pissed off at that. I can only imagine if you upscale that to the level that someone like Lewis Hamilton receives the same nonsense, how you would just be the Oh, it,
2: it's extraordinary. And I mean, I'm... Um... Slightly, you know, middle aged guy. I mean, I've you know, social media for me has been a journey, like it has been for anyone else. But I, I just can't understand how people press the send button on some of the things that they post. Um, of course, most of them are incredibly, um, you know, anonymous and and cowardly. But mm. no, now and again, I mean, I've got some followers who, you know, on Twitter, who are people who I would know, and I read some of the things that they post about. You know, Lewis and the racism thing and the Black Lives Matter and you realise that the ignorance that out there is out there is is extraordinary and is really quite profound. And I think this is why going back and reading your history and learning of the facts of your history is so important because it's the best way to educate uh people about how we got to end up where we are today.
0: Can That's, I give a tip to these people? Yeah. So I'm probably one of the worst people for being an idiot on social media i'm gonna put my hands up for
1: it yeah but you're you're an idiot in the sense that you post silly things you're not an idiot in the sense that you post heinous disgusting stuff that you would never think of saying to someone's
0: face i would never do that but the point is sometimes sometimes my posts can be construed as as the the dumb person so what i do is i write write it out look at it and go no and delete it I don't press the send button. It is not that hard to delete a post if you think it's going to be too mean or too nasty. And not because, only that,
1: but you have to think 99.999% of my followers on social media will never meet me.
0: What does exactly. this tell
1: them about me as a person?
0: And how yeah. is it going to affect the mental health of the person that's going to receive this?
2: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It's interesting. I had a I had a personal kind of moment to check myself a few years ago and I was I reposted a tweet that a relative of mine had posted, and it was about Lewis Hamilton. And it was actually amusing, I thought. And both my kids came to see me and they said, why did you repost that? Because actually, if you think about it, it's that's part of the problem. Mm. And I went back and I read it and I thought, yeah, I did think that was funny, but in fact, it's really not that, it's actually a bit tragic. So, and I deleted it. And I remember thinking, there's a lesson I'm never going to you know, forget. Before you press the send button, you have to ask yourself, would I want my family members to see that? Would I want to see it in print? If someone put that in front of me in a, you know, if I was sitting in an interview and someone's put that in front of me and said, are you proud of that? The reality is we, we all have a responsibility for setting the tone of conversation that takes place online. And, uh, you know, and I think it's a, it's a big responsibility. Unfortunately, it's a responsibility most people choose to ignore, it seems.
1: This is true. Um, but let's finish on the history so yes there was the legacy with the silver car but what other remnants are there of nazi influence on on formula one today is there anything
2: well i think there's a, the, the the reality is that um it left a legacy of in motor racing of an awareness of just how strong the, the german motor industry was and the role that it had to play in motorsport going forward and if you look at the brands that are involved in in racing today, Mercedes-Benz, uh, Audi, as I said, uh, came out of Auto Union, uh, Porsche itself. We talked about Ferdinand Porsche. So you have all of these brands still today. They all have a very interesting, very very colourful history. And in those days, those dark days of the Nazi era, all those companies, you know, were dragged. You know, in some cases voluntarily dragged, and other cases maybe kicking and screaming into. Uh, getting involved in the armaments etc the reality is that i think the legacy of that period was that once the second world war was done and dusted that german car industry uh, reemerged very quickly very very strongly and as we know through 1960s, 70s and onwards then became like a one of the dominant forces uh, in the world today. And again, and ironically, with the Japanese car industry also following the, the Second World War, both Germany and Japan really went on to to dominate so much of the automotive industry in the world for the second half of the 20th century.
1: I mean, I've just done a new series of war factories for yesterday, and there's a trailer running now, so it must be on soon. And we actually uh, have got an episode that includes the Volkswagen story, which is the Allies, after the war, help trying to get the German economy going again by getting Volkswagen kick-started. So, so, and then yet again, it becomes murky, doesn't it? Because, okay, yeah. they had connotations that are distasteful now, but who got it going again after the war? We did.
2: Yeah, it was ex- and it was an extremely important uh, product that uh, Volkswagen Beetle, uh, you know, went on to have a very long and successful history right up to the present day. But th- there's an interesting point on all of that. So I think Adolf Hitler became Reich's Chancellor January, end of January, 33. Uh, and less than two weeks later, I think it was 11 days after he was appointed Reich's Chancellor, he opened the Berlin Motor Show. And it, at that opening ceremony, he made two announcements. The first announcement he made was a state-sponsored Grand Prix motor racing team. He said, we are going to have a state-sponsored Grand Prix motor racing team. He, at the, t- he at the time, thought it would be just one of the manufacturers. They ended up spending the money across uh, two of them. The second thing he announced was the people's car, the Volkswagen, which, of course, was then subsequently designed by our friend Ferdinand Porsche. So, you know, right at the beginning of his uh, chancellorship, uh, Hitler was setting the stage for their return to glory of Germany in motor racing and then the development of that car, which as you say, then went on to have a very long life after the second world war.
1: It's just been brilliant. Mark, thank you so much for coming on to give us formula one history. Um, and and we all know they are ghastly and disgusting, but people love hearing about Nazi history and, and hearing about this stuff. And I think it's been really important to bring it up to date and touch on Mercedes Benz and touch on Lewis Hamilton. Um, And how we deal with sort of connotations now. In part, I mean, Mercedes aren't going to close down as a business and go home because some of their past was sordid. So it's how we rectify the past with with going forward. And I think I think the black car is a really a really good way to do that.
2: Yeah, and it's certainly out in front and beating everyone this year. I think we're going to see Lewis Hamilton win a a seventh uh, Formula One World Championship, which will match that of the great Michael Schumacher.
1: Just not history based at all. Do you, do you ever think he'll get the respect he deserves?
2: Uh, I don't think he'll get the, the respect he deserves with a minority of people who I think have. There is a fundamental racism, and I think there is also a fundamental misunderstanding about Lewis and his cultural influences and the things that make him tick. I mean, he get, often gets criticized for things which I now realize are one of the reasons, or some of the reasons why he's such a strong formula one driver he has got so many broad interests outside the sport it actually really strengthens him inside the sport he's an extremely rounded individual uh, in that way um but i think within the industry there's no doubt the respect is already there and i think in the fullness of time the vast majority of people will come to realize what a complete superstar uh, britain has had in lewis hamilton
1: thanks so much for your input and come back anytime you like to talk yes, more Formula I, One history. I'll Mika. I'll come
2: back and talk. Well, let's, <laughs> I'll come back and talk more fun subjects about Formula well, One. Well, let's history. talk about
1: the some epic drivers in Finnish motor racing history. We don't have enough um, European content, and there've been some absolutely fantastic Finnish Formula yep. One Grand Prix yep. drivers. So we should no, do that
2: well we've got the phrase in in racing that to finish <laughs> to finish first first you have to be finish so that we can, we can we can drag one of them on the show i'll go and talk to mika and tell him that he needs to come and meet you alex
1: outstanding I just, I there is a alina there is a really sad pathetic little teenage girl story here mika was in a <laughs> horrible horrible crash in 1996 is it in adelaide is it 98 sorry
2: No, no, it was earlier.
1: It was uh, 95. Ah, Yeah. And I just, I was so, I was what, 11? And oh my God, I was a wreck. I didn't go to school for two days. They thought he was going to die. It was awful. And I sent a get well card that I drew myself. I I think I painted his car for him and in one piece, obviously, and sent it to him and he must've got overloaded because he'd had these uh, thank you cards printed out a few months later in the shape and design of his helmet with like, thank you for your concern. And I got one back and I was very, very happy in my head that made us friends.
2: Well, at least you heard back from him. That was good.
0: Yeah. Can I exactly. just say, I do have to have total respect for him. It's just Räikkönen. Just it's just you're shallow,
1: and Räikkönen's better looking, right?
0: Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's that is. Do you know what? I think
1: you've got me pegged. Right. I know you then. so well, Alina. They're both fantastic <laughs> drivers.
0: They, they are, and I totally yeah. agree. I'm, I'm only, I'm only being silly. But I do have total respect <laughs> for him.
1: <laughs> awesome. Well, then we'll catch up with you soon, Mark. Okay, thank you so much again. Join us on Monday when we begin our African-American History Week by talking to Pulitzer Prize winning author Annette Gordon-Reed. We sat down with her to talk all about her groundbreaking research into Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, who was one of his slaves, many slaves that he owned and their relationship. So join us for that. It's a really fascinating talk. Don't miss it. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.